you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give these guys a hand. That that is how to do a Bible reading. Uh, Teddy, you should do audio books. That was great. Uh, Fantastic. All right, if you haven't met me before, my name is Luke and I'm the lead pastor here and it's just great to be with you. Uh, And I was thinking during the week how great leaders are tested and proven by adversity through, through challenges. Doesn't matter what field of endeavor, if you're a politician or a pastor or the captain of a sporting team, a military general, a monarch, or the, the manager of Dunder Mifflin uh, from the office, uh, a leader earns their stripes, establishes their credibility, and builds their authority through adversity by how they handle challenges. 
That's what we've been seeing with Nehemiah. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. And just recently, we've seen them take on the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. In chapter 1, we heard that Nehemiah saw that the people were in great trouble and shame, and God had sent him to do something about that. Uh, but there's been challenges along the way. Uh, last week, we saw that there was opposition, adversity, challenges from outside, uh, people from the other nations, the other tribes uh, around them who wanted to sabotage this work. They're going to continue doing that this week, but we'll also see another threat, a threat from within as God's people start to fragment and as uh, their unity is undermined by greed and selfishness. But in amongst all of these challenges, we're going to see that the godly character of Nehemiah shines through and we'll see a leader who, two things, shares God's heart for the vulnerable and secondly, fears God in a way that makes him fearless of men. First of all, we see that Nehemiah shares God's heart for the vulnerable. Uh, last week's passage was so inspiring. We saw the people come together, band together and do this great work uh, together in great courage and uh, they built this community. But this week's passage is a real downer. It starts with a very sad story as there is division among God's people. You see, they're being oppressed by their own countrymen. Verse 1, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Uh, you'll remember that many, probably most of the people who were working on the walls at Jerusalem, had travelled from far and wide to come to Jerusalem. Then they'd, been, they'd lived too far away, and so they needed to stay in Jerusalem as they built the walls. And that meant that their families back home were feeling vulnerable. They've been away for weeks now and things are getting difficult. The breadwinners are, are away from them and it sounds like a lot of these families are, are large with, with our sons and daughters. We are many. Uh, they're probably the, the poorest of the people as well. They don't have savings or anything like that. They rely on stuff to get through every day. It's day-to-day -day existence and they don't have uh, the things that they need. And this is a problem because... God's people are supposed to look after each other. When God established his people as a nation, they weren't just to be a nation, they were to see themselves as a kind of family. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That language, your brother, like you should see your neighbours as your brothers, the people around you, you should treat them as family. And secondly, it's not just the, the always poor who are struggling, there's also others as well. We're told that there's a famine on in verse 3 and it's putting everyone under pressure. So even those who have property are getting desperate and having to mortgage their fields and their vineyards and their houses to get grain. Now, famine brings scarcity. Scarcity brings inflation. Uh, there's less of everything, so everything costs more. Just try and buy some lettuce right now. And so even those who have land and property are now vulnerable. To get food, they have to mortgage what they have. Meanwhile, others are struggling to pay their taxes. The Persian Empire was a, a massive empire, broken up into 26 satrapies or provinces, and this all required a lot of financing, money that was raised through taxes. Uh, these taxes were pretty brutal, and people are having to borrow money just to pay their taxes off. And now they're, to, to do that, though, they're falling in with the loan sharks. 
You know, those guys who kind of offer you money straight away and then ruin your life with the interest rates. That's what's happening here. And the worst thing is it's happening with other Jews doing it to their own people. Now, this was forbidden by God. Uh, A Jew could uh, charge interest if they were lending money to a Gentile. God allowed for that, but they weren't to do that for their own people. Again, this is another sign that God wanted them to see each other as a family. So just as I go to the bank and I expect to pay interest, that's how it would work in Israel as well. But if I go to the bank of mum and dad, then I probably don't have to pay interest. And that's how it's supposed to work here as well. God's people are to be a family. But now they're ripping each other off to the point where these people, these poor people, are getting completely destroyed. They're so far in debt that they have to sell off their children into slavery so that they can pay off what they need. This sounds insane to us. It's amazing how every family service, there's something that's difficult for kids to hear. So here's this week's one, kids, you could be sold off into slavery. No, just, just kidding. But what I mean is that they have this, this horrible situation where they don't have any money and they don't have any way to raise it. This is a very troubling moment. Nehemiah had begun this project wanting not just to rebuild the walls, not just to rebuild the city, but to rebuild the people, to reconstitute them as a family in covenant with God and with each other. But right now that's not happening. The walls are coming together, but the people are falling apart. And so we have this great challenge for Nehemiah. What will he do? How will he respond? How will he keep these people together? Verse 6, we see his response. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. He was very angry. He had this great sadness that God's people were oppressing each other. I was thinking about anger and what an interesting place it has in the Bible. Uh, Often in the Bible, we're warned about the dangers of anger, Psalm 37, refrain from anger, forsake wrath. And yet there's other verses in the Bible where it suggests that anger is something that's appropriate even the necessary response. So we know, for instance, that God, Psalm 86, is slow to anger. Yes, he's slow to anger, but he does get there. He does have anger. And if God is perfect and he has anger, then there's clearly times where it's appropriate to be angry. There seems to be this kind of tension, which we actually get in Ephesians 4, where it says, in your anger, do not sin. So it's appropriate to have anger at times, but you must not sin within that. So how do you hold that tension? How do you get that right? Well, I was reading something during the week uh, by a bloke called Bob Deffenbaugh who uh, talks about righteous anger and he gave five characteristics of righteous anger, which I found really helpful. The first one is that it's an anger which is consistent with the holy and righteous character of God. A righteous anger happens uh, when God is angry and we share those passions, those same priorities as God. It's in line with his character. Secondly, godly anger is legal anger. It doesn't just kind of take things into our own hands. It's not vigilante justice. It follows the proper processes. Thirdly, God's anger is not explosive, but it is it is only slowly provoked. So it's, it's, it's careful. Uh, you don't You think things through and you ensure that justice is done. And fourthly, godly anger is always under control. doesn't take over and rule a person. We don't lose our temper with righteous righteous anger. 
And then fifthly, godly anger is not relished. There's a sense in which we're reluctant to be angry. 2 Peter 3 says that God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so righteous anger is not vindictive. It's not self-righteous. So to summarise those five things, righteous anger is consistent with God's character. It follows due legal process. It's not explosive, but careful. It's controlled. And in a sense, it's reluctant. It's not relished. And when you think of those things and look at Nehemiah's behaviour in these passages, I think it stacks up. First of all, his anger is consistent with the holy and righteous character of God. See, God is appalled when the poor, when the vulnerable are overlooked or mistreated. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. And God expects his people to defend the vulnerable. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So Nehemiah has those same desires. And he's angry too because he can see how this reflects really badly on God's, on God's character, God's people. The behaviour of God's people makes people see and think that God is the same. As Raymond Brown puts it, who would believe that Israel's God was kind, merciful and compassionate when his worshippers were cruel, merciless and mean towards the people he loves? So Nehemiah is angry because he shares God's heart and he shares God's priorities. And then secondly, we see that Nehemiah's anger is not explosive. See, as we read on, we see that it's never out of control He takes time to think through his response. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself. A strange sort of phrase, but I think it means that he he took his time to think through what needed to be done. We know that Nehemiah is a man of prayer, so he would have prayed. And then when he acts, he does it according to the law. He doesn't go on a wild rampage like Harvey Dent or Batman or something like that. He, He calls an assembly to hear the case and then outlines the charges carefully and thoroughly. And he's very clear with the people how they've sinned. And yet even in that, there's always this desire for repentance and restoration. Verse 11, return to them this very day, their fields. He's giving them a way to respond correctly. He makes it very clear that they must do this. He he shakes out the folds of his garment. It's kind of a symbol to say, if you don't do this, God will kind of shake you out of the people. You'll be the ones who are destitute. So it's a very clear, strong warning. And all through this, you can see that he wants restoration. And so he rejoices in what happens next. The guilty feel their sin. Uh, When they hear the charges, we're told that they were silent. They could not find a word to say. They feel convicted. They commit to change. We'll restore these things. We'll do it, as you say. Nehemiah makes sure that they promise to do this. And they do it. The people did as they had promised, verse 13. I think it's telling that at the end, all the assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord, because they can see that justice has been done. The poor would feel heard, would feel cared for, looked after, defended from the bullies. And these leaders, these nobles who had done these things, the oppressors, They've been humbled and they now truly understand what's required of them. And so 
remarkably, this moment that could have been a total disaster where the people completely fragmented has actually become a point of unity. God's people have gathered and agreed and Nehemiah's godly leadership has led towards this. And as we reflect on this little episode, I think it's important to say something here about the, the importance and the power of righteous anger. First of all, it's really important. See, sometimes we don't get angry when we should, or we don't get angry enough. We ignore sin, either because we're part of it ourselves, or because we're blind to it, or we're too afraid to confront it. None of these things are right. If we're part of the sin, then we need to repent because we're compromised. If we're blind to it, it suggests that we don't really share God's heart. And if we're too afraid to confront it, we're not doing God's work. And yet if we do have the right kind of anger and we can manage it well, it can be incredibly powerful. See, often we sin in our anger. We're too harsh, we can condemn people, don't give them a chance to be restored, or we become self-righteous. We lift ourselves up because it makes us feel good to judge someone else. But Nehemiah never does that. He speaks firmly and clearly, but he offers restoration and works towards that with these people. You often hear the wrong that we walk past is the wrong we accept because the things that we kind of ignore or whatever become the culture of a place. Nehemiah is not letting that happen. He knows that God's people are supposed to care for the vulnerable. He has God's heart for the vulnerable and he's making sure that that is the culture. He would want us to make sure that's the culture here as well. So God has a special affection a special concern for the vulnerable, for the poor, for the oppressed, for the downtrodden, for those who are victims of injustice and cruelty. This is God's heart. And so we should share that heart, both in protecting and defending the vulnerable and also providing, being generous. Actually, that's what I love. I mean, Michelle uh, touched on this in her talk, how incredibly generous Nehemiah is. It's not just what he stops, it's also what he starts. He has this access to all of this food allowance and he could have expanded his portfolio of real estate. He doesn't do any of that. He gives away everything that he can. He's a great model for us of how we can be. So who are the vulnerable in our community? First of all, within the church, are there people here who are lonely and isolated, who've had bad experiences at previous churches or at our church, who feels left out? Are there cliques that exclude people? Are there those who feel broken by sin and guilt? They've repented of this, but they don't yet feel restored. These are the vulnerable in our community. And then to think of the people outside our church. This is a time where so many people around us are hurting. The census data came in the other day and found that something like one in five young Australians have experienced severe mental, uh, mental health issues over the last year or so. That's an extraordinary number. 
There are so many people in our city, around us, our friends, in our workplaces, our family members, who are having very difficult seasons. They're vulnerable. And then think of those who are poor or mums who are overwhelmed, single parents perhaps, domestic violence victims. God has a heart for these people. So will we share that heart? Uh, last year, City on a Hill set up something called the Mercy Innovation Fund. Basically, across our movement of churches, we've set apart $200,000 for investment in mercy initiatives. This could be any activity aimed at providing relief to the homeless, the marginalised, the poor, the lost, the sick, the forgotten members of our communities. It could be practical assistance like food or shelter. It could be some other kind of assistance like rehabilitation or counselling or skills training. Fellowship, care. Already some, already some of this money has been allocated to some of our other churches for their initiatives. Our church in Melbourne Central has a kitchen that serves homeless people on Friday nights. They've got a new van to kind of help with that ministry. Our church out in the eastern suburbs are using some of this ministry to set up a, 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 court, a budgeting course through Christians Against Poverty. A great practical way of helping people who struggle with money. Our church in Geelong is investing in a practical helper program called The Shed. What could it be for us? Like, there's this awesome fund right here that if we've got ideas, we could do something with it. Now, imagine we created a space to care for the needy in this area. Just right where we are, we have this fascinating place. We're just down by the river. We have these fancy apartments We'd be worth squillions. And then like two streets away, there's housing estates where some of the poorest people in our city live. What a fascinating place we have here. Around the corner, there's Footscray Hospital with uh, an acute mental health ward. Maybe there's something that we can do to interact there, to engage and to help people there. What about all the mums that we're blessed with in our church? Imagine doing a, a kind of play group that brought them together and also brought others from the community around us together. What are ways in which we can share and show God's heart to the community around us? If you're like me, then you feel like, oh, I need to grow in this. How do I, how do I get that? And ultimately, the wonderful promise of the Scriptures is that ultimately it comes from Jesus. See, Nehemiah shares God's heart for the vulnerable, but Jesus shows it in the most profound way. He shows God's heart because he is God. And you look at Jesus, the way he demonstrated God's heart throughout his ministry. He always went to the outcasts, the lepers, the sick, the diseased, the shamed, the forgotten, the sinner. He was known as the friend of sinners. And that includes us. Because we are sinners. We all have walked away from God. And so we are ultimately vulnerable. We are in great trouble and shame. If you've felt your sin, then you know what that means. And so we are vulnerable to God's righteous anger. It is right for God to be angry at our sin. But the glorious news of Christianity is that that righteous anger God absorbs within himself 
Jesus takes it on so that we don't have to receive that. And once we get that, once we see God's love for us in our vulnerability, the more we focus on that, the more we will share that heart for those around us. So Nehemiah shared God's heart for the vulnerable. And secondly, Nehemiah fears God in a way that means he doesn't fear men. You see, we see all of these attempts, uh, but, but all of this stuff that happens within the group, within the community. But as we read on, we see attacks come again from without, as once more his opponents desperately try to get rid of him. Remember what drives these blokes? In chapter 2, verse 10, we were told it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They're, they're set against God's people and they just want to stop anyone doing something good. And they can see the power and the, the, the leadership of Nehemiah, so they want to get rid of him. First of all, they try to kill him. To do so, they have to lure him away. So Sambalat and Geshem uh, send him, chapter 6, verse 2, come and let us meet together. This all sounds lovely, a cup of tea and scones, but Nehemiah smells a rat. They intended to do me harm, verse 2, and so he tells them to go away. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. They keep trying. They sent to me four times in this way, but Nehemiah is resolute. I answered them in the same manner. Seeing their plans thwarted, these enemies change tack. If they can't kill him, if they can't get, get him out there, if he knows what they're trying to do, at least they can try to discredit him. Get rid of him that way. And so on the fifth time, they send him an open letter, something that everyone can read, that says, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Uh, this is, of course, slander. None of it is true. The Jews don't intend to set up their own kingdom. Nehemiah certainly doesn't want to be a rival to, his, uh, to Artaxerxes. But it could have been incredibly destructive. So it kind of sounds believable if you imagine that everyone has just got this uh, great ambition for power. And just imagine if Artaxerxes had heard this and believed it. He could have just swept in and got rid of Nehemiah, destroyed them. This is really the power and the poison of slander. It's not true. It's made up. But people don't necessarily realise that and we're all too quick to believe it. I mean, think of ourselves when we hear gossip. It's so easy to believe it. It's so difficult to disprove it. I mean, do you just combat that? Do you try and press your claim? Mark Twain once said how easy it is to make people believe a lie and how hard it is to undo that work again. So it's fascinating how Nehemiah responds. Verse 8, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own minds. He just refuses to engage with it. And then he goes on with his business. For he understands what's going on. They all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. He, he recognises that this is all just a tactic, a ruse, to try and put him off his work. 
And he refuses to allow that to happen. Instead, he prays, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. He's fixed on doing God's work. He doesn't fear what these men can do or how they could destroy his reputation. He's just going to keep doing God's work. But still, his opponents don't give up and they get even more subtle because now they enlist a guy called Shemaiah. Shemaiah was a prophet, one of God's people, and in verse 10, we're told that he's confined to his home, which probably means that he feels vulnerable and unsafe. And that's certainly the message he conveys to Nehemiah. Verse 10, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. It sounds like he's trying to protect Nehemiah. Just, just come to this safe place and we'll be okay here. But it's all a trap. For a start, if Nehemiah goes to the temple, he'll look like a coward. Remember last week, as the enemies pressed in around them, he kept telling to the people, come on, guys, we've got to be strong. We've got to be courageous. Fight for your homes. Fight for your families. Fight for the people of God. And so he's going to lose all credibility if he now runs away. But even more than that, Nehemiah was forbidden from entering the temple. God's law made it clear that only the priests could go into the temple. And so if Nehemiah goes in here, he'll be breaking God's law and exposing himself to the consequences. Either way, Shemaiah is trying to entrap, entrap him, trying to destroy him, discredit him, get rid of him. I just think how hard this must have been for Nehemiah. I mean, he could understand why the, the people from the other nations were against him. But here was someone from his own people, a traitor. And we're told in verse 14 and 17 that there were other prophets who were doing the same, and even some of the nobles were kind of feeding information to Nehemiah's enemies. How difficult. I mean, this is a great challenge. He's trying to lead the people, but he's getting sabotaged from within. But still, Nehemiah is resolute. He tells Shemaiah, verse 11, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He refuses to do it because he can see through what they're doing. Verse 12, I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way, and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. I look at this story, and I just see a man of incredible courage, determination, and remarkable discernment. Like, like he knows what to do in every situation. He's, he's wise. And where does wisdom come from? Well, Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And I mention that because, actually, I think the fear of God is the thing that underpins everything that Nehemiah does. I was talking before about how generous, generous he was in giving, uh, giving stuff away to the people around him, and in verse 15 he explains, I didn't lord it over the people because of the fear of God. Like, this is the thing that guides what he does. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? The fear of God. We've thought about it a few times here. 
It's a strange thing to have. I mean, we want to believe that God is kind and loving and approachable. And so the idea of fear seems to go against that. But it doesn't have to. You see, God is worthy of a certain kind of fear, a certain kind of respect. He's great. He's mighty. He's perfect. So it's right for us to acknowledge his superiority. In fact, it's even right for us to have some fear of his justice. I was reading something during the week about a a former mafia boss who converted to Christ while in prison. And he said that he had developed a healthy fear of God's judgment and that had prompted him to turn to Jesus. So there is a sense in which that's a right thing for us to fear. Fear can be a good thing if it makes us careful not to dishonour God or to sin. And what I see here is the fear of God can also be a very powerful thing. See, when you honour, fear God, you honour him above everyone else, everything else, and that means that you don't fear men or what they can do to you. It changes your perspective. That's what we see with Nehemiah. Take all of these efforts to discredit him, to, to slander him. He could have tried to rebut them, but he chose not to because he has nothing to hide. See, at the end of the day, if people slander you, the best response is a godly life, a life of consistent, humble virtue. If you do that, if you're always above reproach, then when people hear something uh, slanderous about you, they'll probably be like, yeah, no, I know him, he's not like that. Now, of course, I'm not saying that all accusations are false. Some things do need to be investigated. Just look at Ravi Zacharias. But also, if you look at that situation, you'll see that when his life was investigated, it all unraveled, it all fell apart. With Nehemiah, it's different. They could have looked through everything, could have looked through his accounts, could have furrowed through his life, could have opened up the closet, and there was no skeletons there. And so Nehemiah is able to entrust himself to God. He's able to entrust his reputation to God because he's above reproach. But the reason he's above reproach is because he fears God. He feared God and so he feared sin and he kept away from it. So he had a clean conscience and could entrust his reputation to God, the righteous judge. And it's the same thing when the physical threats come. Like his enemies are genuinely dangerous people. They want to kill him, but he's unafraid because he knows that God is on his side. Psalm 62, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. That's when I look at Nehemiah, I reckon we see this interesting little kind of paradox. Because Nehemiah fears God, he's not afraid of God. I don't know if that makes sense, but basically it means that he respects God and seeks to follow him And so he's not afraid of God's judgment. And that means he can come to God for God's strength. Oh, God, strengthen my hands. See, the right fear of God means you don't cower away from him, worrying that he's going to strike you down. It means that you come to him. His great strength is not turned against you, but given to you. And by the end of the chapter, we see what this great strength accomplishes in and through Nehemiah. 
chapter 6, verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. 52 days. This amazing, massive project that seems so impossible. I mean, two months ago, they were in great trouble and shame. They had nothing. The people were fragmented. The wall was destroyed. But in just seven and a half weeks, Nehemiah has been able to get the people together, plan out, strategize the mission, the work, and get them to work, keep their morale going, fight off all of these adversities and challenges, attempts to stop them, to sabotage them, infighting among the people, all of this. And now we see the work is done. And when it's finished, we actually see its significance. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They had tried so hard to stop this work, to make the people fear, but now they're afraid. All of these enemies see that God's strength is evident. The only way all of this was possible was that God did it. See, Nehemiah is a great leader, a godly leader. We can learn so much from him. But ultimately, what we need to see is God behind him, in him, working through him. That's where this true strength lies. And, of course, he points us constantly to the greatest leader who did the greatest work. In Jesus, we see someone who, like Nehemiah, was completely fixed on the task, on the work that God had given him. It seems strange to say that Jesus feared God because he's God himself. But what we do see in him is this total determination to do God's will no matter what. And that is the thing that keeps him going when there's so many other reasons for him to be distracted or for him to be afraid. I mean, he faced constant opposition the religious authorities, the fickle people who tried to follow him and didn't, Pilate and the Romans, the devil himself. He was slandered and in all of this he remained faithful. 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Just like Nehemiah, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And we see the strength that God gave him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as the trauma of the cross is so vivid in Jesus' mind, the challenge of it, he prays, doesn't he? Can you take this away from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's totally fixed on the target, the work. And so God strengthened his hands for that work. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We were straying like sheep, walking away from God and all that is good. But through his death, we come back to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. This is the work that Jesus had, lifting us up out of our great trouble and shame bringing us together. As Peter says, we're in our living stones. We're God's people being built into something glorious. 
and it's all through his strength. It's all through the strength of the one who's done everything that needed to be done. Now he invites us to share his heart, to not fear others, but to find the strength that he offers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the continued example of Nehemiah and what we're learning from him. We thank you that in all of these adversities, these challenges, you were always faithful. You kept him faithful, kept him walking with you. Thank you that he feared you in a way that made him fearless of others and instead found your strength. Lord, may we have a right respect and honour for you. May we come to you, may we not cower in fear, but come to you for strength. Thank you that we can do that because your righteous anger has already been dealt with through Jesus. Help us to receive that, to hold on to that, to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.